Well, we are in Isaiah 28, and uh, we finally moved past the, uh, the first major section and talking about more of the, um, the distant uh, prophecies, and now we're more, again, returning to the immediate things that are in the near future of both the northern kingdom and the, the southern kingdom. So, yeah, tonight it's uh, a prophecy referring or actually kind of references sort of in passing the judgment that's coming upon um, Ephraim, which is the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, but the prophecy that is uh, in passing to Ephraim is meant as a warning to Judah to get their act together because what is about to come upon Israel uh, is going to affect you, but it's not going to overthrow you. But if you don't get your act together, then uh, you will be overthrown. So it's intended to, to wake them up and to restore them to faithfulness to God. But the, and the problem is, of course, is that Judah is guilty uh, and is becoming more and more guilty of the same sins as, as the north. And in fact, I think that before the Babylonians come, uh, the southern kingdom of Judah plummets into greater depravity than even the north did. And so things get real ugly. And so any judgment that comes their way is, is, um, is well-deserved. So, well, why don't we stand for the reading of God's word? Um, if it's a long section, so if you don't feel like standing, we won't judge you. All right. Isaiah 28. It never looks this long when I'm just studying it. Okay. Isaiah says, Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the, the verdant valleys. Verdant, verdant. How do you say that, by the way? Verdant. All right. I know what it means. I just don't know how to pronounce it. To those who are overcome with wine, behold, the Lord has a mighty and strong one, like a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, like a flood of mighty waters overflowing, who will bring them down to the earth with his hand. The crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, will be trampled underfoot. And the glorious beauty is a fading flower which is at the head of the verdant valley. Like the first fruit before the summer, which an observer sees, he eats it up while it is still in his hand. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people, for a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and for strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. But they also have erred through wine and through intoxicating drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They are swallowed up by wine. They are out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. For all tables are full of vomit and filth. No place is clean. Whom will he teach knowledge? And whom will he make to understand the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just drawn from the breasts? For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here little, there little. For with stammering lips and another tongue, he will speak to this people. To whom he said, this is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. But the word of the Lord was to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here little, there little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and caught. Therefore, 
Hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, we are in agreement. When the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge and under falsehood, we have hidden ourselves. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Also, I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plummet. The hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and the waters will overflow the hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overflowing scourge passes through, then you will be trampled down by it. As often as it goes out, it will take you. For morning by morning it will pass over, and by day and by night it will be a terror just to understand the report. For the bed is too short to stretch out on, and the covering so narrow that one cannot wrap himself in it. For the Lord will rise up as at Mount Perizim. He will be angry as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work, his awesome work, and bring to pass his act, his unusual act. Now therefore, do not be mockers, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts a destruction determined even upon the whole earth. Give ear and hear my voice. Listen and hear my speech. Does the plowman keep plowing all day to sow? Does he keep turning his soil and breaking the clods? When he has leveled its surface, does he not sow the black cumin and scatter the cumin, plant the wheat in rows, the barley in the appointed place? and the spelt in its place. For he instructs him in right judgment. His God teaches him. For the black cumin is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over the cumin. But the black cumin is beaten out with a stick, and the cumin with a rod. Bread flour must be ground, therefore he does not thresh it forever, break it with his cartwheel, or crush it with his horsemen. This also comes from the Lord of hosts, who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. Well, Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, often thank you for your warning. You have not changed over all of these centuries, millennia. You are righteous and you demand righteousness, Lord, holiness from your people. And so help us to learn more about you as the measuring line, as the word says here, is is righteousness and justice and that you always judge accordingly. And, um, but Lord, in all of this is your mercy, constantly calling the sinner back to you to repent. And, um, yeah. So Lord, help us, even through some of these very interesting passages and figures of speech and illustrations, Hebraisms, Lord, help us to grasp the overall message in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Crazy chapter, huh? Don't you love all those figures of speech and illustrations common to ancient cultures, and then we get to beat our heads to try to figure it all out. So let's, let's begin. Um, I imagine we could get done tonight. He says, woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the, what did you say, verdant or verdant? Verdant. Do you actually use that in your vocabulary? Okay. To those who are overcome with wine, actually, the, the Hebrew word actually means fat, fat. And, you know, fat was always a, a term to, to speak of blessing, 
of fertility, things like that. The fat is where it's at, especially if it's like a pork roast. That's not where it was at for the Jews, but it is for me. So, but Ephraim, of course, refers to the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, Ephraim and Israel are often uh, interchangeable terms when talking about the northern kingdom. Um, the woe, of course, is spoken against the leadership of Ephraim. It's the ruling class who uh, Isaiah says are, are drunkards. And they sit in Samaria, that's the capital city. And it's actually the capital city, Samaria, that overlooks this verdant, fertile uh, valley. Okay? It just is seated in that spot where you can just observe, um, especially in the springtime, just all of that lush green. But even though Ephraim is fertile, Isaiah is prophesying this fertile flower is on its way out. It's fading, for God is about to overthrow her prosperity, her power, uh, and of course her, her arrogance and moral foolishness. He says, behold, the Lord has a mighty and strong one, uh, or behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, uh, depending on the translation, like a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, like a flood of mighty waters overflowing, who will bring them down to the earth with his hand, the crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim will be trampled underfoot, and the glorious beauty is a fading flower which is at the head of the verdant valley, like the first fruit before the summer, which an observer sees, and that is he plucks it, and he eats it up while it's still in his hand. So the, 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 you know, the, the language here um, concerning Ephraim's judgment, uh, hailstorms, now, the ideas that we're in this fertile season, uh, how well do crops do when hailstorms come through? Big hailstorms, not so well. Yeah. Uh, how well do things do here when it floods? <laughs> yeah, just wiping out everything in its path. And so we know that um, in the, the 7th century BC, God is going to bring the Assyrians down from the north, and when they make it to Ephraim, they just wipe everything out in its path. And then it has this kind of uh, Hebraism here that like that first ripe fig of the season, the first guy to get there snatches it off the tree and he just gobbles it up. And that's what it's going to be like when the Assyrians show up. They're just going to wipe everything out. They're going to take all the wealth and they're going to disperse the people. It'll just be an absolute horrifying mess. And the, the Assyrians were extremely cruel people. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty. Now he's changing here to the remnants of his people for a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and for strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. Um, the remnant that will be left behind after the Assyrians just wipe out the northern kingdom uh, is Jerusalem. They're almost the only thing really left standing uh, when the Assyrians are done. Uh, all of the cities surrounding Jerusalem throughout the southern kingdom, they are taken. And uh, only those who were living in Jerusalem and those who took refuge in its walls were actually spared from the onslaught of the Assyrians. And in that day, in Jerusalem, Lord is going to show himself strong on their behalf. Uh, they, will, they will go untouched by the Assyrian invaders. You guys are familiar with the story, right? We'll get there later. Because Isaiah 
uh, was actually there, and it'll come up in his, um, in his book. So God will show himself strong, and, uh, and so strong, in fact, at that particular time, that uh, this will be the, it will be the beginning of the end of the Assyrian Empire, the way that God will deal with uh, those people. So Isaiah will be a part of all of it. He'll see it all. Um, it's great stuff. So, and I think that the cool part is, is that Isaiah in the typical kind of cool cat prophet, everybody else in Jerusalem is just in sheer panic. And Isaiah, when they finally come to him, he's just chilling out because he's already seen. He's already had the vision and he knows what God is going to do. And uh, a man of faith. But there's a problem here with, with Jerusalem. He says, but they also have erred through wine and through intoxicating drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They are swallowed up by wine. They are out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. For all tables are full of vomit and filth. No place is clean. Not only will he be an eyewitness of what happens to Assyria, he's an eyewitness of all that's happening inside of the the city walls of Jerusalem. But Judah here is guilty of the same sins of Ephraim, but historically the sins of Ephraim are at this time more advanced or, or, or more depraved. But here the problem is th- that even the priests and the prophets are drunk and not just a little tipsy, but the tables are covered with vomit. They have just, well, it's bad. Now, the problem isn't that they've consumed wine, for God even allowed the consumption of wine during the feasts, Deuteronomy 14, 26. The problem is that the priests were getting drunk when they were settling legal matters among the people. So the judges at the bench are wasted, and they're trying to weigh matters between people. Okay? Leviticus 10, 9 and Ezekiel 44, 22 says, that wine is completely off limits to a ministering priest. So they're in violation of the law just by uh, having wine in that context, but then they're wasted, which is always contrary to the scriptures for everyone at all time that belongs to God. And then the prophets who are to be teaching God's word to the people, they're also intoxicated while they're teaching the word. I, I just don't think that drunkenness makes a good exegete. <laughs> How can they provide clear vision to the people when their vision is just blurred? So Judah is guilty of grave sin, and they will suffer for it, just not to the same degree, at least as Ephraim does in the immediate future, but they will eventually. The judgment, though, as we said at the beginning, that was coming against Ephraim was intended to to restore Judah to sobriety. Not just like literally, but to wake them up in regard to the, the rebellion against God and the, the level of depravity that they have sunk into. It's time to repent. And when an, an invading army slaughters everyone around you, you would think that that would wake you up. Uh, but it didn't wake them up for long. And uh, Israel has a way of, of, I don't know, it's a contagion that they have that they do that. So God is telling them to straighten up or worse is coming to you. Um, now, of course, when Isaiah brought this prophecy, this rebuke to the priests, the prophets, it wasn't received well. So what you have here is you have a, a, some mocking 
that comes up, you know, he, he'll say later, um, you're scoffing and you're mocking. And this is it right here. Uh, they're talking about Isaiah and their, and their drunkenness. And they say, whom will he teach knowledge? Talking about Isaiah. And whom will he make to understand the message? Those just weaned from milk, those just drawn from the breasts. For precept must be upon precept and precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here little, there little. So as you can see, Isaiah um, didn't initially correct them by way of new revelation. He rebuked them from what was already written, right? He instructed them from God's word. That's precept upon precept, line upon line, here little, there little. Uh, You could also say verse by verse. He opened a text to them, uh, probably from Leviticus, uh, or that portion of Deuteronomy that talks about the duties of priests, uh, what was off limits to them. And he just, I mean, he's like, here it is. And he gave it to them line upon line, precept upon precept. Yeah, so a new message from God is not necessary when it comes to addressing immoral behavior. And by the way, there's nothing, you know, like Paul talks about people that are inventors of evil things. Um, well, I don't really think anything is actually being innovated today as far as immorality goes. Because, uh, and even if it was, it's all addressed in Genesis 1 and 2 anyway. You know, And all of the insanity of our culture right now is all in just rebellion against God's original design and will that we see at the creation. But all we have to do is go back to God's word where everything is stated clearly. It possesses ultimate authority. But here's the problem. When you confront people in leadership and you correct them regarding their own trade, you know, their own field of expertise, it doesn't always go well, right? Yeah, a philosopher uh, or a professor of philosophy does not want to a lecture on logic from a student, does he? Nobody in their field wants to be corrected about what's supposed to be their expertise. And uh, so Isaiah does this, and, and you can just imagine the tone that this particular uh, mocking is given in. You know, who does he think he's talking to? Children? Children? Just a bunch of proud junkers. They mocked Isaiah for bringing up the word. A friend of mine has volumes and volumes of scripture memorized. And whenever you talk to him, he usually quotes some passage of scripture. And <laughs> he's had people uh, like get upset with him. Like you always got to bring scripture up. Wow, I, that's, uh, that's a harsh rebuke. <laughs> It happens to be all things pertaining to life and godliness. I thought maybe it applied here. It's, people are funny. Uh, Jesus, you know, he faced this exact problem with the Pharisees when he would correct them with the Old Testament, which was uh, their so-called uh, expertise. They were supposed to be experts in the law. Uh, they got angry with him. Okay? Uh, Isaiah was teaching drunken priests and prophets, uh, precept upon precept, and, uh, but they did not appreciate it. Um, but, you know, it's interesting. It doesn't appear like this method that Isaiah was um, using, that he was employing, was out of order, unusual. Uh, this is actually exactly how Israel was to receive her instruction from the word, as God commanded in Deuteronomy 31.11. And, and then it's actually executed that way in Joshua verse eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 34. Uh, it's, it's exactly how it was done practically in Nehemiah chapter 8. Uh, and I love that first section of Nehemiah where you have Ezra and the priests 
They read from the scriptures to the people from morning to midday. And as they read, it says distinctly from the word, they gave the sense, and then they helped the people understand the reading. That's Nehemiah 8, uh, 1 through 8. It's a simple just definition of, of exposition, expository teaching. Okay? And so by the command of God, by the example from in Joshua and Ezra, uh, the normal teaching of God's word in the Old Testament was, guess what? Precept upon precept, line upon line, and, uh, and a little at a time. And just give the sense as you go. You guys ever experienced that kind of teaching? <laughs> it's really the only way to keep the word in context. You've probably heard that a, a, um, a text used out of context is a pretext. A pretext is simply the use of anything as you know, justification for whatever you want, whether it's a course of action, a point you want to make, or an argument you're trying to win. The scriptures used out of context will say anything anyone wants. Uh, you guys remember when I held that mug up that said, I can do all things through a, a, a passage taken out of context? It's true. It's true. And uh, you can see this in action in Matthew 4, where Satan is tempting Jesus, what's he tempting him with? Passages pulled out of context and then used as a pretext to get Jesus to sin. Yeah, but of course Jesus knows the word in its context and he uses it to battle his enemy. So, and you know, it's interesting, most of scripture is either narrative, prophecy, or doctrine. Narrative, prophecy, or doctrine, all of which requires context for interpretation. And the best way to maintain context is by precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. So when Isaiah brought the instruction of God's word to these leaders, he was just providing God's word in its proper context so that it would be easier to understand and how much better for a bunch of people that are drunk. But they would not listen. And he says, for this reason, for with stammering lips and another tongue, he will speak to this people to whom he said, this is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. So what's going to happen? Refreshing and rest was offered to them. They would not repent, so God says, then I'll speak to you uh, through another people in what turns out to be the Akkadian language, the Akkadian. The difference of language came out in Second uh, Kings 18. Uh, the, the Assyrian official uh, standing at the, uh, the pool and all of the people of Jerusalem are on the wall and he's speaking, he's, he's Akkadian in language and he's speaking Hebrew and do you remember what the elders of the city said? Do not speak in Hebrew in the hearing of all the people because we don't want you to frighten them. Speak in the Akkadian. <laughs> it's so interesting. And of course, the, what, it, what was his title? The Rakshabah? or something like that. That's a pretty crazy sounding name for an official. And he would not listen. But the word of the Lord was to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and caught. It's pretty sad when the word of the Lord comes with so much clarity within its context and they will not hear. They will not heed. And so judgment is justified. So God brought the Assyrians. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men. Those are the, the scorn uh, is how will he instruct? Precept upon, pre like to children? He says, 
who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. Now, the, the scornful, uh, you guys have read the Proverbs, right? Uh, the scoffer is the fool that cannot be helped. He's, he's stupid and he's bent on doing whatever he wants. There's just little hope for these fools. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, we are in agreement. When the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come to us. That is, it won't touch us. For we've made lies our refuge, and under falsehood we have hidden ourselves. Now, uh, there's some obviously differing opinions on what this whole accord that's been made with death is. Some believe that the leaders of, of Judah were engaged in some kind of Egyptian necromancy. Necrom- necro is, means death, and so it's, it's the communication with the dead. And uh, necromancy was huge in Egypt. It was essentially uh, much of the, the cults of uh, Egypt were death cults. And um, so they thought that there was some kind of uh, entertaining of the death cults uh, of Egypt. And uh, they think that somehow this uh, rituals they've been doing, whatever, is going to somehow keep the Assyrians away from them. They've made an agreement. Others think that there may be some communication with a demon uh, from the, the Ugaritic pantheon, which is the, the cults of the north, uh, to protect them from the Assyrians. And then still others believe that Isaiah was, was using some satire, calling their alliance with Egypt a covenant with death, a covenant that just wouldn't succeed when the Assyrians came against them. Now, regardless of what it is, uh, the leaders of Judah were not hoping in what they should have, whatever it was, okay? Other than the Lord, it was anything but the Lord, and um, living in accord with his word just wasn't in their minds. Therefore, because of that, thus says the Lord, behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Does that text sound familiar? Just a little bit? Yeah. It comes out of uh, 1 Peter 2.6. And in 1 Peter, uh, Peter is clearly applying that, at least that principle to Christ, to Jesus, okay? And so the temptation is to say that Isaiah also has Christ in mind in this passage back then, but I'm not sure that that interpretation is necessary there. And let me explain what I mean. And we'll probably someday have to um, talk about the, the, the New Testament authors uh, and the way they used Old Testament references. Because they use them in many, many different ways. And I want to talk about a couple of them, but there are a number of fascinating ways that they use them. And if you don't see the, the differences in the way that they use them, you can get very confused about what's going on in a text. Okay? And so how a New Testament author used an Old Testament passage. We want to be careful, uh, especially when the New Testament author uh, omits the phrase, and thus it was fulfilled. If he does not make that statement, uh, back away from it for a second and take a second look, because he may not be saying that this Old Testament passage was fulfilled in what's happening today. He might be using it in a different way. Peter does not say that Jesus fulfilled what was said in Isaiah 28, verse 16. He doesn't say that. Peter says, therefore, it is also contained in the scriptures, and then he quotes the passage. So it's, it's a little different. Oftentimes, a New Testament author 
is not saying that something during his time is actually fulfilling an Old Testament passage. Rather, he's saying that just as it was true in the Old Testament times, it's true in this case. But if you say that it's fulfilling something, you can come out with some wacky interpretations, okay? Oftentimes, Old Testament passages uh, are not being used for New Testament fulfillment, but simply as an illustration of what's happening in the New Testament. You get it? There's a good example of this in the book of Galatians. Uh, Paul is talking about the problems between those who are of the law, which he says is of the flesh, and those who are born of the Spirit. The Judaizers, who were of the works of the law, were persecuting those who were of the Spirit through faith. And to illustrate the truth, he quotes Genesis 21 in Galatians 4, 29 through 30. And what he's saying is, just as Ishmael, you know the story, uh, Isaiah is just weaned. And Ishmael comes out and begins to mock him, to mock him. Or as Paul uses it here in the illustration, to, um, to persecute, to persecute. So just as Ishmael, uh, the, the son produced out of unbelief, persecuted Isaac, who was born according to, the, to faith, the Judaizers, who were into the works of the flesh, were persecuting the Galatians, who were living by faith. He's saying, just as it was happening back then in a similar circumstance, it's happening today, okay? So the Old Testament story about Ishmael and Isaac was not a prophecy, and it's not a type of what was happening. Paul was just using it as an illustration. That's it, that's it. And that's probably how Peter was using Isaiah 28, verse 16. Just as there was a stone at that time in which people could trust in the days of Isaiah, there's a greater stone today that people should put their trust in, all right? In Isaiah, the foundation stone, the tried precious stone is probably referring to the prophetic word of Isaiah. Remember when he said, this was offered as rest. This was offered as refreshing. And if you would just heed the word of the Lord, you could enjoy that, the stability that comes with trusting the word of the Lord and obeying what he says. But we know what happened. But Isaiah's prophetic word about judgment, it was solid, but it wouldn't fall to the ground. He says, also, I'll make justice the measuring line. Well, justice can work in your favor against it, can't it? He says, in righteousness, the plummet. Just like it was with Ephraim, he says, the hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and the waters will overflow the hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overflowing scourge passes through, then you will be trampled down by it. So everything that is going to hit Ephraim is going to hit you. It's a matter of justice, okay? All of the, these supposed agreements that you've had that you think will protect you, it's just going to wipe it all away. It's not going to do anything. Judah, you will suffer for your sins. As often as it goes out, it will take you. For morning by morning, it will pass over and by day and by night, it will be a terror just to understand the report. So like a scourge, you know, mentioned in the previous verse that goes back and forth over the back of its victim, the waves of judgment will just wash over them and wash over them. He says, you know, morning to night, day by day, almost like the tides of the sea, in and out. And he says, and anyone who understands the report, that is, the... Assyrians begin in the north. And as you hear 
the stories of what they do to the peoples on the way south. Imagine the horror that would come over people. But see, that's, that's the point of all of this. Isaiah is saying, repent, repent, and the Lord will intervene. He says, for the bed is too short to stretch out on. I have this problem sometimes. And the covering so narrow that one cannot wrap himself in it. Interesting. I think that this is what he's trying to say, okay? That whatever is, is not sufficient. You know, the bed isn't long enough and the blanket isn't wide enough. In the context, the thing that is not sufficient is their covenant with death and their agreement with Sheol. Whatever that was, it's not going to be enough to hold off the invading army. Now, if the, if the covenant and the agreement uh, is speaking of the military alliance that they've made with Egypt, because they have, and that may be the bed and the blanket, um, it doesn't work, okay? The Egyptians are punished right along with everyone else. Assyria is just way too powerful. So whatever they were hoping in, which wasn't the Lord, proved to be of no value to their safety. For the Lord will rise up as Mount as at Mount Perizim. He will be angry as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work, his awesome work, and bring to pass his act, his unusual act, speaking of judgment. So the, the Assyrian invading army is going to be like this devastating hailstorm that just, just destroys all the crops. It'll be like floodwaters that, that, that just destroy everything in its path. And so like that, um, he, Isaiah, through, in his prophecy, refers to these epic battles from the past, saying it's going to be like, like that, okay, in the judgment. Isaiah is referring to 2 Samuel 5 and Joshua 10. In 2 Samuel 5, uh, it was the, the place where, you know, David has just secured the northern kingdom with the southern kingdom. And the Philistines, they hear about it. So they're like, let's go get David. David hears that they're coming, and David says, Lordy, what do you want me to do? He says, they're yours. He says, go get them. And so in two different battles, he routes them all the way back to the very southern tip of Gaza, more than anybody had ever done with the Philistines. But I think even a more, far more epic battle is Joshua 10. Joshua slaughtered five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. I think it's the most impressive military campaign in all of scripture, and it was just at a whim. You remember they made a, a, a covenant with Gibeon, contrary to what God had said, and when the other people in uh, Canaan had heard, they said, let's, let's go punish Gibeon. So Gibeon was like, hey, you made a covenant with us, come up and help. Israel's down in Jericho, and they have to climb the mountains and then travel north to Gibeon, where they attack all these armies. What is there, like eight or nine kingdoms involved? They, they send them flying all over, and they chase them. I think, I, I worked up the math one day. I think it's like 48 miles, and they're slaughtering them all day long. And, and you remember, that's when uh, Joshua, he's like, the sun is going down way too fast, Lord. And so he prays, and so God gives him more killing time. And they just devastate all of these. Well, what Isaiah is saying is that when 
Assyria comes down, you can imagine these legends of Joshua, of David. They were just in their, their stories, their lore. And he says, you know those stories. Assyria's coming down like that. It's going to be devastating. But this time, instead of Israel being used as the instrument of God's judgment, you are now going to be the object of his wrath. Very sad. And so he says, therefore, do not be mockers, lest your bonds be made strong. That is, lest it be worse for you. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts a destruction determined even upon the whole earth. Now in verse 14, it accused them of being scornful. And now he rebukes them for being mockers. Now in the book of Proverbs, the mocker, the scoffer, <clears throat> is, excuse me, is the dumbest of all people. And you look at what, what Solomon says. He says the scoffer, excuse me, that was good cooking tonight. He says he will not be corrected. He ignores all rebuke. He scoffs at wisdom. And when he is desperate for wisdom, he can't even identify it. He doesn't listen to counsel. He talks when he should not. He talks over people. He makes fun of everything that is good. And so Solomon says the scoffer is an abomination to men. Yeah. Judah has become a society of scoffers and would increase their suffering and sorrows if they didn't turn back. Their bonds, their fetters, their chains, whatever that Hebrew word means exactly, is just going to be made heavier, stronger, weightier if they don't relent. You know, the temptation, of course, and they succumbed to it, but was mocking Isaiah's prophecy. But Isaiah went to them pleading with his own people to relent, to be reconciled to God. Don't make this worse. And it says that the Lord is bringing his judgment on the whole earth. Now, context always has to determine what the, the word earth means. It probably means the land of Israel. All of the land that Assyria is going to devastate. Repentance. He says, give ear and hear my voice. Listen and hear my speech. Does the plowman keep plowing all day to sow? Does he keep turning his soil and breaking the clods? When he has leveled its surface, does he not sow the black? Am I saying cumin, right? Is that right? Okay. And scatter the cumin, plant the wheat in rows, the barley in, its, in the appointed place and spelt in its place. For he instructs him in right judgment. His God teaches him. For the black cumin is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over the cumin. But the black cumin is beaten out with a stick and the cumin with a rod. Bread flour must be ground. Therefore, he does not thresh it forever, break it with his cartwheel or crush it with his horsemen. This also comes from the Lord of hosts, who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> Well, apparently, people that live in an agrarian culture understand, but not enough to repent, apparently, okay? So, let me give you what I think this all means, okay? God is about to plow up the soil of Judah, okay? But like the farmer who plows his field, God will not plow it perpetually, as he says. It's only for a season. It's for a purpose, and just as a farmer applies a meticulous methodology to protect and maximize his harvest, God is going to take Israel through a meticulous process. Why would he do that? For the same reason that he always does it, to restore, to bring his people to a place of repentance, of sorrow over their sin, so that then they'll then again seek the Lord. Like the cycle of plowing, sowing, watering, 
harvesting and processing grain, which would have been miserable back then. God is going to bring Judah through a painful process that he might produce a good harvest. And then Isaiah attributes this to the wisdom of God. It's going to be long and painful, but it's going to accomplish a good result in the end. Now, of course, this initial thing with the Assyrians doesn't actually work. It kind of works for a little while, but then they go into even more grievous sin. And, uh, well, by that time, the Assyrians have, have been absorbed into the Babylonian Empire. And so now it's time for Babylon to come and uh, lay waste to Jerusalem and Judah. But that won't be the last time that God uses this process to bring about the repentance and reconciliation of those people. Paul brings up this again, uh, as we've looked at a little bit in Romans chapter 11, to talk about what we might say is the grand finale of Israel's redemption in the last days. He says, for God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. And what does he say? Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. I wonder where he got that from. It's interesting. So because of Israel's stubborn waywardness, you guys realize that from her inception, she has endured this process just constantly, which is probably in many ways sadly typical of too many people's lives, <laughs> Christian lives even. But uh, you, know, uh, you know, reading the book of Judges especially, uh, you see this repeating cycle where Israel does evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gives them over, he delivers them over into the hands of their enemy. Then the children of the Lord cry out to the Lord and the Lord raised up a deliverer who then delivers them. And they walk with God for the life of that deliverer. And then they fall back into evil and you have sin, discipline, crying out, deliverance, repeat all through the book of Judges. And it's no way to live but I think that God deals with too many people in this way. And uh, we can sadly be like Israel. And uh, you know, the truth is, is, as Hebrew says, that God disciplines those that he loves. And so if we as his children go wayward, he has the prerogative to lead us to repentance however he chooses. And he does it out of love. And you see people that go through this cycle and the only way that I can explain it is that God disciplines those that he loves. But he would much rather them just humble themselves, repent, and walk with him and enjoy the life that he's providing for them. It was Jesus that says, I have come to give you life and that you would live it more abundantly. Amen? All right, why don't you stand up and we'll pray. You know, that whole philosophy of teaching that was applied by Isaiah of course, we do that here because we believe that in the scriptures are all things pertaining to life and godliness, that they are living and powerful, that they, uh, it's, it's through that by which we receive the grace of sanctification uh, as we, of course, cooperate with the Holy Spirit. And uh, I think it's just sweet. So I was actually uh, saved in a church uh, for the first time in my life I had heard uh, somebody teaching expositionally, Calvary Chapel Olympia, when I was in the military. And I, I couldn't believe that I was actually understanding the text. And it was Zechariah 3. And the gospel 
comes out in the vision of Joshua the high priest. And uh, so not only was I, uh, as, as Paul says in Ephesians, you were brought forth by the word, or that's Peter brought forth by the word, uh, but I fell in love with it, and I just don't think there's any other way to give it. Amen? Let's pray. Well, Father, we definitely don't want to repeat the sins of Ephraim and Judah. Lord, you, you brought judgment on Ephraim to teach Judah, and Judah didn't listen. But Lord, we have the, the history, the textbook, that you used justice as the measuring line. These stories, as Paul says, are here for our learning. Lord, we don't want to be on the side of the severity of God, but we want to grow in grace. As Paul says, it's grace that teaches us to live soberly and righteously and to deny ungodliness in this present age as we look forward to your coming. So Lord, help us to to just constantly walk on the right side of the line to be useful for your glory, to be a benefit to your people. So Lord, purge us of sin. Help us to be humble, to confess and repent, and to walk in reconciliation with you, and to be again an example to your people. So Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we we'll love you guys. See you Sunday.